Tonight we continue our uh, study of uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, so far uh, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul has defended the gospel against those who wanted to be teachers but were ill-prepared. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says that these individuals swerve from sound doctrines by wandering into vain discussions, meaning senseless babble. Uh, They focused on things that were not important. Uh, They wanted to uh, teach the law without understanding the law's purpose. They didn't see the relationship of the law to the gospel, and so they misunderstood both which ended up perverting the gospel itself. Uh, This defense of the gospel uh, will be repeated throughout this epistle. In fact, it bookends the epistles almost in the same way. In uh, chapter 6, Paul will say in verse 20, 21, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of the false teachers, uh, what they call knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul not only uh, defends the gospel, he celebrates the gospel. In fact, that more than condemning, he lifts Christ up. That's really the answer to false teaching. Uh, Is not always uh, attacking, but rather giving them the truth. This is what the Bible says, and this is who Christ is. And so, uh, we begin uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul continues, uh, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am not telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul starts our section by reminding Timothy and us of the priority of prayer in the Christian life. Verse 1, first of all then, pray. In light of Paul's defense and celebration, the first thing he wants them to do is pray. Uh, Because the gospel is true, that Jesus came to save sinners, that is more than a sufficient reason to pray. 
when Paul says, first of all then, he is not simply giving the first of several exhortations. It's more than that. First of all, meaning foundationally of first priority and importance is prayer. Paul is telling them that prayer should be what they are doing. It's, it's really the most important thing we do. And even as I say that, I know every Christian here says, amen, brother. Then why do we have problems with it? What is perhaps the, the easiest thing to do, simply talk to God, and the most important thing to do, sometimes we as Christians struggle uh, to do it often and to realize that it is of utmost importance. God is sovereign. He creates and sustains the universe. Nothing outside of God exists. In him is life, meaning we exist because in this moment, he wills us to exist. If he stopped, there would be nothing. Only God. We have no reality, no life in ourself or in anything that is created. In Isaiah 46, 10, the prophet says, uh, 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 says this, and it's God speaking through the prophet. I am God. There is none like me. I declare the, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Then it says in verse 11, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. God, if, we, if we're convinced that God is sovereign, if we're convinced that he is in control of every detail of our life, then the most natural thing to do is pray. Is there something that you want to see happen in your life for the life of a loved one? Is there some good and righteous thing that, that you desire? Pray. And don't just give God your sort of your Christmas list of stuff. Prayer should be an act of worship. Prayer should be talking to God as a friend who loves you. A good portion of prayer should be confession of sin. That's a constant struggle. Confess to God when you struggle. When you see failure in your life, confess. Confess that you don't pray the way that you should. Pray to God about everything and repent when you don't. When I say 
that repentance should be a, a large part of our prayer. I'm not speaking of a woe is me kind of attitude, but an acknowledgement that I don't talk to God about all the small stuff that I should, that I struggle far more than I'm willing to admit. That it's hard sometimes when life is difficult to believe that God loves me and that I can trust him. Like I said, prayer should be the easiest thing that we do, but it kind of goes against our independence and our self-sufficiency. I can do this on my own. I'll, I'll call God in if I need reinforcements kind of attitude. We know prayer is important, but deep down inside, I think so, we, we believe it's a little too passive. Yeah, I pray, but then I got to go do and make stuff happen. Like I'm really in control of anything. That I can decide what happens in my life. And that all of life depends on me. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things that we are to do. There are responsibilities that we have. There are uh, commandments that we are to obey. But we need to recognize that if God is not in the middle of what we are doing then it is all vanity and chasing after wind. Psalm 127, 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. Our life is in God's hand. It's easy to say that when life is going good, isn't it? But right now, you think, my life is not turning out the way that I want it to. And if God really cared, if, if God was really in control, then why is my life the way that it is today? This is not what I planned. This is harder than I expected. Believe me, I understand that struggle. I understand what it's like to pray, believing that God is good, believing that God is faithful, ready to receive all the blessings he has, and nothing seems to change. When that happens... And I'm tempted to doubt or to question or to give up. The truth that comes to me is where else am I going to go? And then I confess. And I say, Lord, do with me what you will.
I'm not God, you are. You are the potter, I am the clay. Tell God you are finding it hard to see his goodness in your life. Acknowledge it as a lack of faith and ask God to help you to believe all that he says about himself and about your relationship to him. Prayer is foundational. Not just for us as individuals, but as a local church. We should be praying together. God wants us to pray together. And not simply about my neighbor's aunt who, there's something wrong with her, I don't remember. And because we, we've all been in small groups, we all know what prayers often are. They're about other people and other things in other places. But we don't always share our heart and share what we are struggling with. <laughs> I can, uh, yeah, I, I'm a professional. So um, when I lead a small group, I'm, I'm very intentional about asking people directly, what can we pray about for you? And asking questions and avoiding discussions about myself. But every once in a while, uh, someone will press me. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable sometimes to share your burdens, to tell people where you are struggling and where you need help and where you are weak. Pray together and ask, ask God before you go to your next small group, Lord, help us as brothers and sisters in Christ to truly come before you humbly believing and pray together for those things that really touch our hearts, that we would pour out our heart before you. Think of the the early church as the disciples after Jesus dies and is ascended the disciples are waiting for the promised Holy Spirit and in Acts 1 it says they were all together devoting themselves to prayer and then the very next chapter after the Spirit comes, in chapter 2, verse 42, it says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. They were devoted to being together, sharing the means of grace, and praying together. One of the things that marks out the Christian church from an unbelieving world is when we pray. And think of when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It was corporate. Our Father, who art in heaven, give us 
this day our daily bread. Forgive our debts. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so the question is, what does your prayer life say about your trust of God? And what does your prayer life say about the relationship you have with your brothers and sisters in the church? First of all, then, pray. But who are we to pray for? Look at the end of verse 1. Who do we pray for? All people. Now, that doesn't mean you have to pray individually for every person on the face of the planet. That's impossible. It can be, it, it's hard to pray for your brothers and sisters in the church. Sometimes it can be hard to pray simply for your small group and our missionaries and the people you serve with, the people that you have contact with in any meaningful way. But we can pray for everyone. Look again at verse 1. I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. First thing Paul does is he mentions different kinds of prayers, doesn't he? Supplications, meaning requests. Prayers, which is just sort of a general word for prayer uh, in the Bible. Intercession, praying for others. Thanksgiving, rejoicing in who God is and the goodness and the gifts that he gives us. Paul's point is that all kinds of prayers should be made for all kinds of people. For some, we're praying that God would encourage them or build them up. For others, we're praying that God would heal them. For others, that God would convict them of a particular sin. Different people need different kinds of prayer at different times. And so different prayers for different kinds of people means that there's no limit on who we are to pray for. Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Verse 2a, for kings and all who are in authority or in high positions. Now think about when Paul wrote this. At that time, there were no Christian nations. Every ruler in the world was a pagan. And who was the king under whom Paul lived? The Roman emperor, Nero, who was a wicked, vile persecutor of the church. He would dress Christians up in animal skins and throw them to the dogs to be ripped apart for his own entertainment. He would light Christians on fire and use them as candles at night. It is under Nero 
that both Peter and Paul were eventually martyred for the faith. Yet here, Paul is telling us, pray for the king. Pray for Nero. That's not just a suggestion. That's a command that comes from Christ through his apostle. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, even those who act as enemies of the gospel and intend us harm. That's true then, that's true now. Pray for kings and presidents. You may not like Biden. You may not have liked Trump or whoever. And you have every right to vote your conscience and to use whatever means are available to us in our system of government to express your opinion. But as Christians, you need to pray for our leaders. To what end? So that we, Christians, verse 2b, may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is the very antithesis of hostile rebellion. God does not call Christians to seek to overthrow their government. On the contrary, what does Paul say in Romans 13, 1 and 2? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities... For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. We are to submit to our government as best as we can. Only if our government calls us to disobey some clear teaching and command of God, do we have a right to disobey? doesn't mean we have to like it or we have to agree. Romans 13, 1 and 2 may not be your favorite memory verse, but it should have a place in our political thinking, how we relate to the government and to God. See, without government, even an evil government like Nero, our world would turn into chaos and anarchy. Even pagan governments are used by God to keep some semblance of order as part of God's common grace to us. This is... uh, Uh, What John Stott, John Stott was an English pastor in the 20th century, said, The duty of the state is to keep peace, protect citizens, preserve law and order, punish evil, and promote good. 
so that within such a stable society, the church may be free to worship God, obey his law, and spread his gospel. Conversely, it is the duty of the church to pray for the state so that the leaders administrate justice and pursue peace. And we are to add thanksgiving for the blessings of good government as a gift of Christ. There is much in our government, much in our society today that concerns us as Christians. It's, it's unfortunate we almost expect all of our politicians to be dishonest and somewhat corrupt. But we can pray for them. And we can thank God for the liberty that we still have. And ask God to preserve it. And ask him to turn hearts towards Christ. And then vote and do whatever is lawful uh, to make your opinion known. I think it's important uh, where we struggle is knowing the difference between what is perhaps a concern and what is our responsibility. Um, Knowing the difference is really the secret of a peaceful and quiet life that is godly and dignified. We focus on our responsibilities. Paul Tripp talks about the circle of concern and a circle of responsibility. I think he got it from Stephen Covey. Uh, The circle of concern is much bigger than the circle of responsibility. In the circle of concern is everything that can weigh on our hearts, be it major or minor. We can be concerned about world peace. We can be concerned about Supreme Court uh, decisions. We can even be concerned about the eagle's place kicker. Most of the concerns are outside our responsibility. There's little we can do about it. We cannot control what others will do. But within that circle of concern is the smaller circle of responsibility. Those things we can and should do to affect change. We need to keep in mind the difference or we're just going to get frustrated. Think about Maybe a personal um, example. Think about your children or your grandchildren. Your concern is that they be obedient, but probably even more so that they would be true believers. You can't make that decision for them. You can't make them believe. And really... A good part of the time, you can't even make them obey. There are things you can do. You can be an example to them. You can pray for them. You can bring them to church. You can disciple them 
and the fear of the Lord. Those are your responsibilities. And as we do our responsibility, we then entrust them to God. It is his responsibility to save. And so, uh, as we think about kings and authorities and presidents, vote, petition, write letters, run for office. Those are things you can do. But the things that Congress is deciding tonight that I don't agree with, right now there's little I can do about that. And so I entrust that to God, and I pray that God would do a work. Think of Philippians 4, 4 4-7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus be anxious for nothing but in prayer give it to God Do what is your responsibility and entrust the concerns to God. But then we think, yeah, but he might act or do stuff in a way or in a time that I don't want. What is that but a lack of faith? You're questioning God's power or his goodness or his faithfulness to us. Confess that for what it is. And ask God to help you to trust him. It can be hard. For me, it's a battle. But Christ is our example. When we were preaching through 1 Peter, I was preparing, I was preaching the first part of chapter 3. And so I was just reading through the first two chapters again uh, over the course of days. Just kept reading and thinking. And uh, under uh, the section about submitting to every institution created by God, in chapter 2, it's, I think, Pat, you, you preached on submitting to unrighteous uh, masters. And it says, and so it talks about how uh, when we suffer for doing right, And he says, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges rightly. That's become just a prayer for me in my struggles. And we've all had those moments where people don't even know you're struggling. You're having arguments with people. You're saying things to people in your mind because you want to control situations, and this is unfair, and let me tell you what I think. Lord, let me entrust myself to you. 
you deal with other people, I will trust you, that you are righteous, that you are good, and that you will work all things out for my good. And so this sort of entrusting ourselves to God, recognizing what's our responsibility and what's our concern, this is what leads to a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, tranquil and calm, devoted to God. So we're to pray for all kinds of people, all kinds of prayers. We're to pray for kings and those in authority. What are we to pray for? Paul says all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, including kings. Uh, and then the context uh, in, in 1 Timothy 2, think about it. What are they to pray for in this context as they pray for kings and those in authority? First, I would suggest that they pray for peace amid persecution. That's what was going on at that time. Pray for peace amid persecution so that the church may flourish in all the ways that it should. Paul is instructing this young pastor, Timothy, that churches should pray for temporal peace and protection that the government can provide, even during persecution. Even though Nero was a a wicked persecutor of the church, just the, the nature of the culture allowed the church to prosper because of the stability that Rome provided, what's called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Because Rome was the controlling empire, there were roads that could be traveled. There was relative peace that allowed the gospel to spread. It was still dangerous, but Paul was able to preach throughout the Roman Empire because of the stability that the Roman government provided. Live in peace and tranquility, even under persecution, as a witness of the power of God in our lives. Even as we are marginalized, we're not really persecuted yet, not in the way that Christians are in other parts of the world, but we are being marginalized. This is an opportunity to shine brighter, to show the world what it means to be a Christian, to respond in peace and love, to trust God. Even in persecution, uh, God uses it to grow his church. In the second century, Tertullian, who was a church father, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning the church grows best under persecution. I don't know if that's true, but it's it's an astute observation. Think Think about Stephen. Stephen is martyred, and what's the result? The church scatters all over the world, and they take the gospel with them. And the church 
spreads and the church flourishes. In Philippians 2, we're told to be uh, uh, lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. We can show Christ in the midst of difficulties. God, God uses our godly response as a powerful witness to the world around us. And so, what are we praying for? We're praying uh, uh, for uh, temporal peace, for stability, even in the midst of persecution. But secondly, in this context, uh, Paul uh, encourages us to pray for salvation of those who are persecuting them. Verse 2 to 4, pray for kings and those in authority so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Pray for those who oppose us. Pray for those who want to silence us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For God makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even, do not even the tax collectors, meaning sinners, do the same. Do you love your enemies? Do you pray for them? In verse 3, the salvation of humanity is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That should be the strongest incentive to pray, shouldn't it? It pleases God when people come to saving faith. Verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, meaning to become Christians. Christianity is based upon an objective historical truth, the reality of Jesus, who he is and what he did in his life, death, and resurrection. In Timothy's day, there were attempts to limit the gospel to Jews only. If you, if you wanted to become a Christian, first you have to become a Jew. But the gospel is for everyone. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Male nor female, slave nor free. The gospels for all who are sinners and need a savior, which is all of us. And so that should drive our prayers and that should drive us towards mission. But the fact that our text says that God desires all people to be saved sort of creates this theological problem. If God desires that all people be saved and God is sovereign, then why are some not saved? How does this desire of God fit in with the biblical doctrine of of election and the sovereignty of God? God desires all to be saved, but all are not. But we're told in Ephesians 2 that salvation is a gift from God. Now that 
means that this verse in 1 Timothy, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved, should not be used to be some kind of universal statement that everyone will eventually be saved, regardless of whether they believe in Christ or not. But neither can it mean that God's will is ultimately thwarted. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's sovereignty and human freedom is an issue that has divided Christians for centuries. But one way that we can think about this is to think of God's will in two different ways. One is his declared will. Those are his commandments and his laws. This is how I want you to live. But then there's his decreed will. This is what's going to happen. This is what I've willed to occur. These are the things that I've ordained to bring about. In uh, Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments is God's declared will. And the fifth commandment forbids direct and intentional killing. Thou shall not murder. That is God's will for us, is it not? Yet, in Acts 2, Jesus is put to death. Basically, he's murdered by lawless men. Yet, it's according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. God's declared will, his command was that they should not murder, but God decreed that Jesus should die by the hands of godless sinners. God worked through the freedom that those sinners had to follow their own desires, and in that he accomplished his purpose, our salvation. We have to understand that God is ultimately the author of all that happens. Human freedom occurs within the sovereignty of God who works in and through people to accomplish his will. The Bible acknowledges both human responsibility, yet it also speaks of God's sovereignty over all human history. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, J.I. Packer calls this, uh, these two teachings in Scripture of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God, an antinomy. An antinomy are a pair of principles that stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable but both undeniably true. Um, if you struggle with the issue of human responsibility and sovereignty, this is a great little book. It won't take you long to read. Um, I, Packer does a good job. Packer suggests that we exist in the tension of the, the antinomy. He would say... We accept both. Where the Bible says 
Man is responsible. Man is responsible. Where it says God is sovereign, God is sovereign. And we trust that although our minds struggle, that's not a struggle for God. In fact, I, th- I, think, uh, I think it was Packer who quotes um, Charles Spurgeon who, who suggested that as we think of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God, that they're like two lines that seem parallel, but we know that they eventually converge. And then he says, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, your, your mind will never be able to go to where they actually converge. And where they converge is at the throne of God, from whence all truth comes from. We believe what the Bible says, even if we can't fully wrap our minds around it. We should grapple with it without denying the truth. But as we think about these issues, let us not get so caught up that we really miss what Paul is saying here. He's not introducing this issue that God desires all men to be saved just to create an argument among us. But he's teaching us a a, a truth. He's building a theological foundation for Christ as our great mediator between God and man. And so we pray for everyone because God wants everyone to be saved. Then Paul adds two more reasons to pray. Verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We pray for everyone because there is only one God. Our God is the God of everyone, whether they believe in him or not. And there is a day coming when they will face God. And they will have to give an account. The Bible says there's a day coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. For those of us who are in Christ, we will do it with joy and thanksgiving. For those outside of Christ, they will bow. They will confess in anguish and fear and regret. We pray, we evangelize because there is one God and each person will give an account to God. We are sinners by nature and we need a savior to bring us back to God and Christ is the only mediator between God and man. There is no other way. 
There is no salvation outside of Christ. And so we pray for each person, asking God to save those who are lost. Lots of people say they believe in God. They may even say, I believe in one God. I believe in the God of the Bible. That's not sufficient. We must trust in Christ. Believing in one God is simply monotheism, not Christianity. A person can believe there is one God, but still believe there are many ways to God and many ways to salvation. Phil Riken, uh, the president of Wheaton College, tells a story of Jane Fonda, the actress, speaking with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the Church of England. And the Archbishop says to Fonda, Jesus is the Son of God. Fonda answers, maybe he is for you, but he's not for me. And then the archbishop rightly replies, well, either he is or he isn't. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He is or he isn't. There is no other option. There is only one God and only one way to God, and that is through the mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. We pray for everyone because everyone needs to see their need for a Savior and come to Christ. Our sin separates us from God. We cannot go to him directly. No one can. We must come through Christ. In ourselves, we are already condemned. God is a holy fire of righteousness. If we came into his presence directly, we would be consumed. We come to God only through the righteous life and the atoning death of Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And we know this because of the incarnation. Jesus, in the incarnation, God becomes man. So Jesus is one divine person with two natures. He is truly God, and he is truly man. As such, he is the only one qualified to bridge the divide between us and God and bring us back into relationship with God. How so? We, uh, we have to sort of step back and think of 
the Bible from the beginning to see what Jesus does for us as uh, uh, both God and man. Uh, God made humanity in covenant with himself. That covenant centered on Adam as our covenant representative who was made in the image of God. He was created innocent and placed in the garden paradise to image God, to represent God to the rest of creation. He was to rule the creation under the authority of God. Like I said, he was innocent, but not yet perfect. To become perfect, he had to be tested and righteous. He had to obey God in the face of making a choice. And so he had to be perfected to fulfill his role. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the means by which Adam's covenant fidelity would be tested. Would he believe, trust, and obey God, or would he decide for himself what he would do? We all know the story. Adam failed. He sinned. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and was exiled from the garden paradise which represented God's presence. Humanity now lives alienated from God, living outside of communion with him, outside of the garden presence. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Godhood who remained God but took upon himself a human body and a human will and a human nature. He came to be us. He came to be a second Adam, to be tested, tempted in his humanity. And so to be an Adam without sin to be an Adam who is perfected. Think of Hebrews 5. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus was sinless. He was innocent, but through his testing, he became perfected as second Adam. The Garden Covenant required obedience to God in everything. And so it took a perfected humanity to represent us. But that same Garden Covenant also required death for disobedience. And so Jesus dies receiving the penalty for the broken covenant, the, the death that we deserve, fulfilling the righteous obedient, obedience of the original covenant and receiving the penalty for the broken covenant. He has fulfilled the garden covenant. And he gives that to us through faith. And that's what we call the covenant of grace. And so now through faith, we are united to Christ. So his 
perfect obedience is now ours as well as his atoning death. He fulfilled all aspects of the covenant of creation and through faith union with him, he gives it to us. Think of um, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What is earned by sin is death. But the free gift, the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Through faith, we are united to Christ. And so what he merited by his life and death is ours as a gift. Jesus had to be a man to fulfill that covenant of creation because the covenant was made with humanity. A man had to fulfill it. So Jesus had to be truly man, but he was also truly God, which means as the eternal God, his life and death was sufficient to cover all sins for all who would believe in him. It was eternally sufficient. And so Jesus is able to represent and reconcile both man and God because only he is both man and God. Again, Phil Riken about this passage says, here is Christianity at its narrowest and also its widest. Christianity is thoroughly exclusive. It teaches that there is only one God, one Savior, and one salvation, yet is broadly inclusive. It is because there is only one God that the unique way of salvation is open to everyone. The gospel is presented to all. And if they would believe, they would be saved. Verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. There is no other way of salvation, which is the testimony, the solemn declaration given at the proper or the assigned time. And then Paul closes out this section in verse 7 by saying, it was for this great gospel that God called him to be a witness of the resurrection and to proclaim it to the Gentiles. The foundational Christian life is that we pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people because there is no other way of salvation other than Jesus Christ. Our Father, uh, we ask that you would encourage us by your word, that you would build us up uh, where we struggle to understand uh, how your sovereign choice and our human responsibility uh, meet. Give us a heart to, to want to know and to try to understand. We ask that you would open our minds to understand a little better. That it would be clear to us, uh, uh, but we would not argue or get upset that we would be motivated uh, to pray and to witness uh, for the sake of glory of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.